Hi everyone, welcome back to the MedBullet Step 1 podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of intervertebral disc herniation found under the MSK section at medbullets.com. Let's begin with a clinical snapshot. A 59-year-old woman presents to the emergency room with severe low back pain. She reports pain radiating down her left leg into her left foot. The pain started after lifting multiple heavy boxes at her work as a grocery store clerk. On exam, she is unable to bend over due to pain. A straight leg raise elicits severe radiating pain into her left lower extremity. The patient reports that the pain is worst along the posterior thigh and posterior lateral leg into the fourth and fifth toes. Let's continue with an introduction to intervertebral disc herniation. Clinically, it is defined as a condition in which the central portion of the intervertebral disc herniates beyond the firm outer ring. Remember that this can lead to spinal inflammation with or without nerve root compression. It is also known as a slipped disc, herniated disc, or herniated nucleus pulposus. In terms of the demographics, remember that this demonstrates a male-to-female ratio that is approximately 2 to 1, and it demonstrates a peak incidence in the 4th and 5th decades of life. In terms of the location, it most commonly occurs in the lumbar spine, followed by the cervical spine, followed by the thoracic spine. Risk factors include manual labor, heavy lifting, and competitive sports. In order to understand the pathophysiology, let's review some normal anatomy. The intervertebral disc functions to permit spinal motion, it is a link to adjacent vertebral bodies, and it provides about 25% of the spinal column height. It is composed of the annulus fibrosus, which is the thick outer layer of the disc, which is composed of type 1 collagen, water, and proteoglycans, and the nucleus pulposus, which is the soft central layer of the disc, which is composed of type 2 collagen, water, and proteoglycans. Now in terms of the pathoanatomy, there may be torsional strain which leads to degeneration and tears in the annulus fibrosus. The nucleus pulposus is then able to protrude through the torn annulus fibrosus. This leads to release of inflammatory markers and may compress a nearby nerve root. The nucleus pulposus can herniate in different directions, such as posterior laterally, laterally, and centrally. The direction of the herniation, that is posterior lateral versus far lateral, and the location of the herniation within the spine that is lumbar versus cervical, may change the nerve root that is compressed. Common disc herniations include a posterior lateral herniation of the C5-C6 disc resulting in compression of the C6 nerve root, the L4-L5 disc resulting in compression of the L5 nerve root, and L5-S1 disc resulting in compression of the S1 nerve root. Conditions that are associated include cauda equina syndrome. This is rare and is caused by a large disc herniation compressing the nerve roots at the end of the spinal cord. Another associated condition is radicular pain. This may occur if the descending nerve roots into the lower extremities are compressed. And in terms of the prognosis, remember that the natural history of the disease is that 90% of patients will experience symptom improvement within three months with non-operative management. Moving on to the presentation. For a lumbar disc herniation, symptoms may include low back pain, radicular leg pain, which radiates from the buttock into the leg, it worsens with sitting, coughing, valsalva, and sneezing, and it improves with standing. On motor exam, findings will depend on the nerve roots that are compressed. If there is an L5 radiculopathy, then one may note weakness in the extensor hallucis longus, ankle dorsiflexion, and hip abduction. There will be a normal patellar and Achilles reflex. If there is an S1 radiculopathy, then there may be weakness in ankle plantar flexion and a diminished Achilles reflex. In terms of provocative tests, one can perform the straight leg raise. This will elicit pain and paresthesias in the leg at 30 to 70 degrees of hip flexion. It is caused by tension in the L5 or S1 nerve roots. 
One can also demonstrate the bowstring sign, that is, a straight leg race that is aggravated by compression of the popliteal fossa. In the case of a cervical disc herniation, symptoms will include occipital headache, neck pain, and unilateral arm pain, numbness, weakness, and or tingling. On motor exam, the findings will depend on the nerve roots that are compressed. In the case of a C5 radiculopathy, one may note weakness in deltoid and biceps and a diminished biceps reflex. If there is a C6 radiculopathy, one may note weakness in the brachioradialis and wrist extension and diminished brachioradialis reflex. In the case of a C7 radiculopathy, one may note weakness in triceps and wrist flexion and a diminished triceps reflex. In terms of the provocative tests, one may perform the Sperling test. This is tested by extending the head, rotating and laterally bending to the affected side and vertically compressing the head downward. It is positive if this maneuver reproduces pain in the ipsilateral arm. In terms of imaging, radiography is not typically indicated as findings are often normal, but they may demonstrate loss of disc height or loss of lordosis. An MRI is also typically not indicated unless operative management is being considered. It is the best imaging modality to characterize the site and extent of lesion. In terms of the differential, make sure to think about paraspinal muscle strain, with distinguishing factors being that this will not present with radicular pain and it will typically resolve within six weeks. Also think about spondylolisthesis with distinguishing factors being that radiographs will demonstrate slippage of one vertebra relative to the inferior vertebra. In terms of treatment, non-operative options include rest, physical therapy, and anti-inflammatory medications. This is indicated as first-line treatment for the majority of patients with intervertebral disc herniations. Another option is nerve root corticosteroid injection. This is indicated as an alternative treatment if physical therapy and medications fail. Operative options include microdiscectomy, this is indicated if there is failure of non-operative management or in the case of cauda equina syndrome. And lastly, complications related to intervertebral disc herniations include cauda equina syndrome. Remember that this occurs in 1-10% of lumbar disc herniations. Now that we've discussed the major points relating to intervertebral disc herniation, let's walk through some questions to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For the first question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 62-year-old man presents to his primary care physician because of lower back pain and radiating leg pain. He says that the pain is searing and goes from the buttock into the posterior thigh and lateral leg. It is moderate in intensity, and he has noticed that it worsens with sitting and improves with standing. His past medical history is significant for well-controlled hypertension, but he has otherwise been healthy. He works as a laborer loading packages in a warehouse and is concerned because the pain does not allow him to work. On physical exam, he is found to have pain in paresthesia while performing a straight leg raise. Radiographs show loss of disc height, and MRI demonstrates significant degeneration and posterior lateral herniation of the disc in between the L5 and S1 vertebra. Adjacent discs appear to be relatively normal without notable herniation. Which of the following sets of findings would most likely be seen in this patient? And the answer choices are Choice 1. Weak ankle dorsiflexion and diminished Achilles reflex. Choice 2. Weak ankle dorsiflexion and hallucis extension. Choice 3. Weak ankle plantar flexion and diminished Achilles reflex. Choice 4. Weak ankle plantar flexion and diminished patellar reflex. Or choice 5. Weak ankle plantar flexion and hallucis extension. The best answer to this question is choice 3. Weak ankle plantar flexion and diminished Achilles reflex. This patient with posterolateral L5-S1 disc herniation 
most likely has impingement of the S1 nerve root, which would lead to weak ankle plantar flexion and diminished Achilles reflex. Lumbar disc herniations can cause pain and paresthesias by compressing nerve roots as they exit the spine. These herniations can either be posterior lateral or far lateral depending on the anatomy of the defect. Posterior lateral herniations will compress the traversing nerve root, which is numbered the same as the inferior vertebra. For example, a posterior lateral L5-S1 disc herniation will impinge upon the S1 nerve root. A far lateral herniation, on the other hand, will compress the exiting nerve root. The S1 nerve root is important for ankle plantar flexion as well as sensation on the lateral foot so these functions will be impaired when the root is compressed. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. Weak ankle dorsiflexion and diminished Achilles reflex is incorrect because ankle dorsiflexion is related to the L5 nerve root rather than the S1 nerve root. Choice 2. Weak ankle dorsiflexion and halysis extension is incorrect because both of these functions are related to the L5 nerve root rather than the S1 nerve root. Choice 4. Weak ankle plantar flexion and diminished patellar reflex is incorrect because the patellar reflex is related to the L5 nerve root rather than the S1 nerve root. Choice 5. Weak ankle plantar flexion and halysis extension is incorrect because halysis extension is related to the L5 nerve root rather than the S1 nerve root. Finally, a bullet summary. S1 nerve root compression will lead to weak ankle plantar flexion and diminished Achilles reflex. For the second question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 61-year-old man presents to his primary care physician with a three-week history of left arm numbness and weakness. He says that his left arm has been intermittently tingling for several months, but he attributed it to strain and aging. He began to become concerned when he realized that his left arm was significantly weaker than his right arm. He also endorses neck and arm pain over the same time period. On physical exam, he is found to have weakness with elbow extension as well as with wrist flexion. Downward compression of his head when it is rotated and bent to the left side recapitulates the symptoms he experiences. A problem with which of the following intervertebral segments best explains this patient's symptoms? And the answer choices are Choice 1. C4 to C5 Choice 2. C5 to C6 Choice 3. C6 to C7 Choice 4. C7 to T1 or choice 5, T1 to T2. The best answer to this question is choice 3, C6 to C7. This patient who is experiencing unilateral weakness of the left triceps and wrist flexors and has a positive spurling sign, that is downward vertical compression of the head after rotating it and bending it to the affected side causing pain, on physical exam most likely has a C7 radiculopathy caused by herniation of the C6 to C7 intervertebral disc. Intervertebral disc herniation leads to impingement of the nerve roots that exit the spinal canal at that level. This disease can therefore present with unilateral radiculopathies that result in pain, weakness, and loss of reflexes in the muscles governed by that nerve root. Importantly, cervical disc herniation leads to impingement of the lower nerve root until the cervical to thoracic transition. For example, a C6 to C7 disc herniation will affect the C7 nerve root that supplies the triceps and the wrist flexors. Herniation at this level will therefore present with weakness of elbow extension and wrist flexion, as well as decreased triceps reflexes. The Sperling sign can confirm radiculopathy, and it involves downward vertical compression of the head after rotating and bending it to the affected side. The maneuver works because cervical compression will lead to increased impingement of the affected nerve root. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. 
C4 to C5 will impinge the C5 nerve root, which will present with weakness of the deltoid and biceps muscles. Patients will therefore have difficulty with shoulder abduction and elbow flexion. Choice 2. C5 to C6 will impinge the C6 nerve root, which will present with weakness of the biceps and wrist extensor muscles. Patients will therefore have difficulty with elbow flexion and wrist extension. Choice 4. C7 to T1 will impinge the C8 nerve root, which will present with weakness of the finger flexor muscles. Patients will therefore have difficulty with grip strength. Choice 5. T1 to T2 will impinge the T1 nerve root, which will present with weakness of the interosseous muscles of the hand. Patients will therefore have difficulty with abduction and adduction of the fingers. Finally, a bullet summary. The C7 nerve root supplies the triceps, wrist flexor muscles, and finger extensor muscles. For the third question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 59-year-old woman presents to the emergency room with severe low back pain. She reports pain radiating down her left leg into her left foot. She also reports intermittent severe lower back spasms. The pain started after lifting multiple heavy boxes at her work as a grocery store clerk. She denies bowel or bladder dysfunction. Her past medical history is notable for osteoporosis and endometrial cancer. She underwent a hysterectomy 20 years earlier. She takes alendronate. Her temperature is 99 degrees Fahrenheit, blood pressure is 135 over 85, pulse is 85, and respirations are 22 breaths per minute. Her BMI is 21. On exam, she is unable to bend over due to pain. Her movements are slowed to prevent exacerbating her muscle spasm. A straight leg raise elicits severe radiating pain into her left lower extremity. The patient reports that the pain is worst along the posterior thigh and the posterior lateral leg into the fourth and fifth toes. Palpation along the lumbar vertebral spines demonstrates mild tenderness. Patellar reflexes are two plus bilaterally. The Achilles reflex is decreased on the left. Which nerve root is most likely affected in this patient? And the answer choices are choice one, L3, choice two, L4, choice three, L5, choice four, S1, or choice five, S2. The best answer to this question is choice four, S1. The patient in this vignette presents with low back pain, muscle spasms, and radiating leg pain suggestive of an acute herniated nucleus pulposus or a herniated disc. The anatomic distribution of her pain is consistent with S1 radiculopathy, likely due to L5-S1 intervertebral disc herniation. Intervertebral disc herniation is a common cause of acute low back pain, often caused by heavy lifting. Posterior lateral herniation of the intervertebral disc typically compresses the descending nerve root. In the case of an L5-S1 disc herniation, the disc will compress the S1 nerve root, leading to an S1 radiculopathy. Clinically, S1 radiculopathy will present with pain that is worse along the S1 nerve distribution, that is the posterior thigh, posterior lateral leg, and lateral toes, and a weakened Achilles reflex. The most common sites for lumbar disc herniation are the L4-L5 and L5-S1 intervertebral discs. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. The L3 nerve root contributes to knee extension and sensory innervation over the groin and inner thigh. A posterior lateral herniation of the L2-L3 intervertebral disc would compress the descending L3 nerve root, but this pattern is rare compared to L4-L5 or L5-S1 herniation. Choice 2. The L4 nerve root contributes to knee extension and sensory innervation over the anteromedial thigh and anterior leg. The L4 nerve root is also responsible for the patellar reflex. A posterior lateral herniation of the L3-L4 intervertebral disc would compress the descending L4 nerve root, but this pattern is rare compared to the L4-L5 or L5-S1 herniation.
Choice 3. The L5 nerve root contributes to ankle dorsiflexion and sensory innervation over the lateral thigh, anterior lower leg, dorsum of the foot, and part of the plantar aspect of the foot. A posterior lateral herniation of the L4-L5 intervertebral disc would compress the descending L5 nerve root. Choice 5. The S2 nerve root contributes to ankle dorsiflexion and sensory innervation over the posterior thigh, leg, and medial plantar aspect of the foot. A posterior lateral herniation of the S1-S2 intervertebral disc would compress the descending S2 nerve root. Finally, a bullet summary. A herniation of the L5-S1 intervertebral disc will compress the descending S1 nerve root, leading to S1 radiculopathy. That's all for this review about intervertebral disc herniation. We hope that was helpful. This is the MedBullet Step 1 podcast, a daily audio review session for MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If the MedBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here, on the MedBullet Step 1 podcast.